snap, bam, you did it. You balled hard enough to get paid. Now what? It's time to start living the dream, son. Everything you've been waiting for is just around the corner. Take that ball and you dribble. You score. You get that girl and you drink that shot because you're the man now. Nah, you're the man for life. Don't worry about the rest of it. We promise if you just keep working, like, so hard, you'll be famous. Or at least, famous enough. Are you ready for a better life? Are you ready to become a different dude? Introduction Unless you were fully tapped into the NBA blog scene of the mid-2000s, you're unlikely to know me. My name is Roderick Benson, and I played basketball for a living for a long time and for free for a lot of years, too. I made money, lost money, made friends, lost them, fell in and out of love, gave an unfathomable amount of buckets and everything in between. I've played organized games in places you had to drive through the jungle to get to. Man, I've sat through an entire half of basketball while a woman blew a boozuela into my ear just to be an asshole. All these wild experiences, and I was still just the average basketball player. But who wants to read about an average guy? I ask that because our stories are told in ways that were once cool, but now feel odd. In fact, when I was asked what kind of book I wanted to write, my first response was not a memoir. That wasn't because I'm anti-memoir or the folks that write them, but because of how conditioned we are to the sports memoir. I feel like the average sports memoir is about some guy who lived a life so amazing that most of the stories are inaccessible to the average person. These stories aren't bad, but they're for fans. It's one person reminding an audience how great they once were. Of course, there's an appetite for that at times. I would happily read everything about Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan if they wrote it, but they don't. If they did, that book would likely be so legendary there might be a cultural shift. That's not to say that a memoir written by Judd Bushler wouldn't be interesting. It just couldn't tell the same story in the same way as Michael Jordan. Unfortunately, though, most memoirs, whether written by a Hall of Famer or a guy who played nine seasons among four teams, have a similar formula. The author remembers certain linear events, gives some background about what needed to be overcome, sex, drugs, teammates, death, military service, and then lists the lessons learned from said achievements. It's really not a bad formula. But for me, once you get past Rodman and Agassiz, the stories don't hit the same. I feel like if I wrote that book, I myself wouldn't want to read it. What was so important about my career as a basketball player that you just must read about it? Nothing. Well, nothing if you're looking for stories about human achievement. But call me crazy. The further I get away from my career, the less I care about any of the achievements. It's not to say that the wins and losses didn't matter. It's to say that I can now firmly say that they never really mattered at all in the end. The experience as a whole is what mattered. And that experience goes way beyond sex, drugs, and a life lesson. Different Dude isn't a book that gets spicy. Well, it does get spicy at times, but the spice is never the point. Some of the names are changed, and I won't say which, so don't ask. This isn't about exposing anyone or anything. This is a collection of stories told in random order about things no one usually discusses because their audience has never asked for it. Maybe they've never asked for it because the process to create a book is so formulaic 
that every beat from the production to the consumption is expected. I bet some of you are even surprised that the cover doesn't say, with, insert famous journalist here. But I don't have a ghostwriter. I hardly have an audience anymore, given how long it's been since I played. What I do have are stories that tell the truth. Stories that remind us that basketball is just a job. And that job came with growing pains, confusion, laughter, tears, and occasionally an eight-footer from a country you've never been to. No, really, the dude from Rush Hour elbowed me in the face. What I aim to do with Different Dude isn't to tell you about a life you didn't live, but to invite you inside a club you've never been in, so you can decide if it's as cool as advertised. It's people doing regular people things, but occasionally placing a jersey over their chest beforehand. I hope that when you finish the book, the overwhelming feeling isn't, I wish I could have done that, but instead, I really could have done that. It would have gone similarly. I want to give the actual answer to the question, what if I had your height? This isn't, as most hoops books go, a love letter to basketball. This isn't a hater's guide to a basketball career either. It's more like a collection of letters written by a widower about his imperfect marriage to someone he can hardly remember without photographs anymore. There's another important note, just for the audiobook. This is not going to be perfect. This is me sitting in my studio talking into a microphone. I'm probably going to flub here and there. I'm probably going to say things that you don't like. But at the end of the day, I chose to do it this way, to record it with my own voice, for the same reason I chose to not have an editor on the book, so that you can believe in the authenticity. There is no one else. If you like it, you know you just like me, the guy sitting here talking into the mic. If you hate it, well, you know you don't have to also hate the cable company. It's just me. Last thing, I want to thank Leonard Smith Jr. for supplying some, I won't say which, of the voices for this book. And with that, let's get grimy. My sophomore year of college at Cal started with so much promise. I hadn't played much as a freshman, but in the last few games of the season, I had been given some time and made the most of it. In the 2003 Pac-10 tournament, I had seven points and four rebounds in 10 minutes of play. Logically, I thought I could easily average 28 and 16 if the coach gave me 40 minutes. That was dumb as hell. We had established a pretty tight set of practice rules and understandings in my freshman year as well. The clearest understanding may have been the biggest one. The starters turned their jerseys to the blue side, and the bench turned their jerseys to the gold side. I spent the entire time as a freshman wearing a gold jersey. So the hope was that in my second year, I could earn my way onto the blue team. How else would I make it to the NBA? I'd have to play real minutes at some point. We had a monster recruiting class that year. I had never seen any of them play, but asked the Rivals.com ratings, and they were all top 30 in the country. It was a legit, legit recruiting class. My goofy ass did not consider at all that time doesn't just move one forward like it seemed to in high school. Time consistently brings new challenges, and in this case, its name was the freshman class. On the first day of practice, I stood there desperately hoping to make the blue squad. I had seven and four. That was a lot. And it was late in the season. Hell yeah, I'm a blue guy. The seniors aren't even that good. Bro, we got walk-ons ahead of me. I'll be fine. 
My internal dialogue was all lies that I fully believed because I was the one peddling them. The coaches read the names of the blue squad. I wasn't one of them. Fuck. Gold again. It's going to be a long road to become a starter, but it can be done. They read the gold team names, and I was also not on that list. What the fuck? What the actual fuck? The shitty part is, I didn't even think about it with that much conviction. It was a sad resignation as I looked at who was left. Myself, a couple walk-ons, and David Paris. I wondered if they were just going to kick us out of practice. They didn't seem to need us, so what was the point? Nothing is worse than watching other people practice while you stand there thinking it could be you. That's when they brought out these red, thin, mesh overlay jerseys and handed them to the rest of us. You guys will be gold B for now. For now, my ass. Yes, coach. I let my head sink into my shoulders. This was a common response for me at the time. It was clear that there were winners and losers, and I would be one of the losers. In an instant, I could map out my entire future as some dude who works at AT&T. No shade to anyone who works there, but I just imagine every day some yokel asking me why I was there and not in the NBA. The answer would be simple. Because I wasn't good enough. These some grimy-ass jerseys, David let out. I guess at least I wasn't alone. That night, I went home and called my mom. It was time to transfer. This was no easy task back then, given that I'd have to leave the conference and sit a year and lose a year. But fuck it, what other choice did I have? For me, I've never been someone to give up, but I've also always looked for a shortcut. In that moment, my mom recognized my exit strategy. No. No. I'm saying I'm going to come home to San Diego State. I'll be close to home. I'll play. I can be close to my great-grandmother. No, you chose Berkeley. You stay at Berkeley. I was confused that my mom didn't want me to come home. She sure seemed to lament my not being there. Maybe that was just general mom speak, and she was actually super happy to have me gone. Or maybe there was something else. Either way, at that age, it felt like I couldn't leave without her support, so I decided to stay. When I woke up the next day, I had hella resolve. If I was going to stay, something had to change. Nothing for me would improve if I just showed up and followed the script. I had had a similar situation in high school, but with less stakes. So I channeled my AAU coach, Jeff, who helped me navigate these things. He hated the system that my high school promoted and also used to tell me to go back there and hurt people. Seriously. Not in a weird way, but he would say things like, take the ball and throw it right at coach's face. Kick Ryan in the balls, man. Fuck those people. In his own way, he had given me a lesson, and although I never hit anyone, it had kind of worked in high school. So here I was confronted with another situation that felt the same but was very different. It was going to take more than a kick to the balls to change my whole life. I was going to have to slap the shit out of someone. When I left the apartment that day, I left with a very specific task. I was going to slap the shit out of the first teammate I saw that day. It was obviously a shitty plan for many reasons, but it was all I had. More aggression would be the key. I would just wait until I saw someone on our team, then slap them on sight. Simples. But it was not quite as simple as that. I didn't see anyone the whole day, which was unusual. 
I was hoping to knock this out, pun intended, before lunch so we could all calm down before practice. That didn't happen. We got all the way to practice time and still nothing. So I went to the locker room and prepared to do this the hard way. I punched in the code and when I opened the door, there were six or seven dudes in there already. One with his back to me a couple feet away. No one was paying attention. Why would they? I tapped that teammate whose back was to me on the shoulder and before he could fully get his head around, I slapped the shit out of him. I had recently seen Chappelle's show and I think I channeled that aggression unnecessarily. The point was the slap, not to fuck him up. I may as well have asked him what the five fingers said to the face. It was actually crazy. He took the hit and stood there, shocked for like three to four seconds. Everyone did, myself included. I could see everyone registering what had just happened in real time. Someone just got slapped. Chris just got slapped. Rod slapped Chris. Rod, the corny nigger from Cardiff by the sea, San Diego. Slap Chris. Once the fourth question had an answer, Chris beat me up. I mean, everyone stopped him, but if they didn't, who knows? He was my size, essentially. This wasn't just some dude. I was still like 190 pounds, and I didn't just learn how to fight well overnight. I kind of just let it happen. I don't remember feeling anything. I was numb. I had no plan for what would happen after the slap. This was supposed to happen at lunch. What came next was interesting. We went to practice, and everyone was not only upset, but it was all they could talk about. It was, after all, probably the only time in any of our lives we would ever see some shit like that. What I couldn't predict was that there was a slight hitch people started to develop around me. I had broken social contract. So now I was like a homeless person on the street to them. Maybe even a rabid dog. I was liable to bite at a moment's notice. That scared people. I was someone who could act in any way, at any time, for any reason. It was a weirdly powerful feeling. I ran with it. New things began to happen in practice going forward. The first was that I started being a dick at all times. I wrote the word grimy on my shoes in big letters every time I didn't play in the game. I started screaming at everyone, pushing them, hitting them. It was mean. The other thing, though, was that I got way better at basketball right away, like lightning fast. I remember one day I stole a ball from someone, took it coast to coast, dunked it, took the ball out of the net so no one could take it out, punted it into the stands, turned to the coaches and screamed, give me some fucking minutes. I was kicked out of the gym. Good. Fuck them. But shit, talent is talent. And mine was starting to show. No one could do shit about it. I was just getting better and better, so I kept getting more time in practice. This whole shit upset a lot of guys. One day, after training table, post-practice meal, I was walking out holding my food in a to-go box. A teammate of mine, fed up with the last few weeks in general, and an elbow specifically levied that day, walked up and knocked the food out of my hand and it fell and hit the floor. He looked up at me. He was a point guard. And instinctively, I put both my hands around his neck and pressed him into the wall of the hallway. Are you calm? Are you calm? Are you calm? I kept asking him. Yeah, he said as best he could. I was cutting off a little air, so I backed off. The way this story spread, holy shit. 
Let some of the guys tell it. And I had him by one arm with his feet dangling inches off the ground. It was the ultimate punking. Like the final retaliation after years of being told I was too soft. Softness is fucking made up. The skinniest dude here has y'all shook. After that day, I was never bad at basketball again. Being unpredictable made people just as scared as any amount of strength did. The next season, I was on the blue team because I was becoming that dude and for no other reason. I went on to be named, I guess it was unofficial, the most improved player in the country after averaging less than a point in my first two years and then leading the team in scoring and rebounding in my third. Rereading this now, something is clear that I never realized before. It was never about how strong or weak I was. It was about smaller people making me feel small. Once I stood fully in my truth, they couldn't hold me. And it wasn't just on the court that took off either. Off it, I made better friendships, finally started getting female attention, and I became the life of the party. It was like life had one big on-off switch, and I'd finally switched mine on.